Have you ever felt like you were a fifth wheel? Or, or maybe the better question is, do you remember the last time you felt like a fifth wheel? Probably felt a little bit awkward. You might have been aware that you didn't quite fit in or maybe even the people didn't want you to be there. Uh, I actually remember one time where we were, some, were with some people and the person who was the fifth wheel never realized that they were a fifth wheel. They were, they were perfectly happy. But it happens to all of us where all of a sudden we're, we come face to face with the fact that we don't really fit in this group or in this time or in this place. It can be mean-spirited, like when all the cool kids get together at lunch and they make it very clear that there is no place at the table for you. Or it can be just slightly clueless. Uh, I was with some of my extended family a couple of years ago, and not, not tons of people, but we were all taking pictures and there was two people that were cousins. And we all took pictures and finally one person stood up and said, okay, just our family now. And I looked at the other two people like, well, we just totally excluded them, didn't we? You know, and they all were polite, but you could tell they're like, well, aren't we family too? And it's like, would it really have killed us just to put the other two people in the picture? So sometimes it's just clueless. We don't realize that we're making other people feel like they're not welcome. But when it happens to us, it kind of hurts because we want there to be a place for us. We want to belong to something or to someone. Even the most introverted among us doesn't want to be utterly and truly alone. We want to matter. We want to feel like there's a place for us where we're welcomed and we're loved, where we aren't forgotten, where we're not an afterthought, where we are intentionally included rather than intentionally excluded. Uh, one of the most amazing places that I have a chance to go to every once in a while, and for those of you that are traveling with me to Israel and Egypt next year, you'll get to go too. It's a place called Yad Vashem. It is the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. And the whole thing is very, very impactful. It's a very moving thing. Uh, but the thing that gets me every time is the children's uh, memorial. You walk into this darkened place and there's a tall tower in the middle and there are just candles reflected by mirrors, just an endless amount of time. And then pictures pop up and there is a voice which continually in perpetuity reads the names of the 1.5 million children that were killed in the Holocaust. And Yad Vashem means a name and a place. It's so that the memory of those people is never forgotten and that their names are remembered and they have a place where they belong, where at least their memory is safe. It's a way to say you exist, you have a place, you belong, and there's power in that. There's power in belonging, power in knowing that there's a place for you. And that belonging and knowing that we have a place is really at the heart of the scripture that we're gonna look at today. So today we're gonna to be in the Gospel of John chapter 14, but context is king. And so in order to understand what's going on in chapter 14, we have to go back to look at John 13 uh, for a little bit. So these are the events in John right before Jesus goes and is betrayed and goes to the cross and all of that. John 13, one says, it was just before the Passover feast, which was concurrent. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think that's one of the most important lines in the whole book. Not just the book of John, I mean in the whole Bible. It says, Jesus having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. 
And if that doesn't sum up Jesus, I don't know what really does. I mean, Jesus can look down through history and say, I never gave up. I never quit. I did everything that needed to be done. I mean, what if at any point along the way, Jesus threw his hands up in the air and said, I've done what I can do for these people. They are on their own. But he never does that. And then the chapter goes on to tell us about how Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And that's very unsettling. Not the, not the foot washing part, because that was a part of their culture. It might be very unsettling and weird for us, but for them it was just super normal. But it was unsettling because Jesus was the one who was doing it. And they have to have sat there and went, what's going on? This is just strange. And then after he washes their feet, he predicts that Judas, one of his closest friends, is going to deny them. And that really freaks out the rest of the disciples. I mean, they're all thinking, someone in our friend circle? Someone in this tight little band is going to betray Jesus and ruin it all? So I think the suspicion begins to raise. And then also some introspection. And they all begin to go, would I be capable of that? Did I do that? So this is just so disconcerting on so many levels. And then Jesus tells them that he's only going to be with them for a little while longer, and then he's going to be gone. And you know people have got to be going, what? I signed up for this cruise because you were going to be on it too. I'm not ready for you to get off. And then there's this other great moment for Peter where Peter says that he's going to go with him wherever Jesus goes, and he'll even lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus, who is normally fairly patient, but you could see how he might be just under a little bit of stress this evening, Jesus basically goes, really? Because before tomorrow, you're going to deny you knew me three times. So all of that is swirling around the table. Lots of emotions, lots of pathos. And then we get to verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, where Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where we are going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where, we're, where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this sermon series is called The Jesus Way. And from immediately post-Easter all the way until September, we're looking at life in response to the resurrection. How do we live like Jesus did? What does Jesus do that we need to incorporate as a part of our lives so that we can live in the power and the life of the resurrection? So how does this passage help us to live lives like that? Help us, how does this passage help us to be more like Jesus? So we're gonna take a look at its component parts. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Well, how could this not be troubling? I mean, they've spent three years together, really intense times. They have laughed together, they've cried together, they've seen the miraculous, they've slogged through the ordinary, they've changed people's lives, they've grown together. And Jesus says it's all about to be over and it's gonna be rough. Jesus says, this news is probably going to rock you a bit, but don't let your hearts be troubled. 
So think about that for a second. Because on the one hand, it could be delusional. It could be that Jesus fully, doesn't fully appreciate the enormity of the situation. But on the other hand, I think he says it very, very intentionally. It's like around our house when all of a sudden there's a very big unexpected noise and the dog starts to freak out. And I turn to him and I go, it's okay. It's okay. And then he calms down. It's like, okay, dad says it's, it's all right. It's much different than when there's a big noise and we all go, what the heck is that? Then the dog really freaks out. But Jesus basically says, here's the reality. It might not be easy. You maybe didn't see this coming. There are going to be some really rough patches ahead. But I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a deep sense of peace. Not just the absence of war, but a real sense of wholeness where everything is the way that it's supposed to be. And then there's this future that you're heading into that's good. That's the rest of chapter 16. And then he ends it with saying, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, don't faint, don't worry. And then he goes on to say, trust in God, trust also in me. Trust means to believe. But like we talked about on Easter, he's not talking about a pipe dream. He's not talking about wishful thinking, but he's talking about a hope that's grounded in reality. As far as I know, trust only comes one way. It has to be earned. It comes with history and it comes with experience. We get to a point of trusting when we can say, my experience with you helps me see that I can trust you. And usually it's because you've been trustworthy in the past. And so I can extrapolate from that that if you've been trustworthy in the past, I can trust you now. Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. And I think he does that because God is a little abstract sometimes. It's a little hard to wrap our minds around God. Jesus is much more approachable. We understand Jesus. And Jesus is like, remember, I'm the guy who's been walking around with you for the past three years. You've done life with me. You've seen my ups and my downs. Have I ever let you down? And that's why the Bible over and over and over again says, remember. And it's why we tell stories about God's faithfulness. It's to remind us that God is good, that God is trustworthy, even during the difficult times. And the God who is trustworthy in the past will see, this thing, see you through this thing that you're going through in the present and will bring you safely to the other side in the future. Life gets rough sometimes and we need some help. But Jesus, over the course of the last two weeks, has told us, my grace is sufficient for you, and that we can trust him that he'll be present. And ultimately, because we're living life post-Easter, we can trust God because the grave is empty. We can believe in the God who raises people from the dead. Jesus continues, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Uh, when our girls were little, every once in a while, we would leave them with my folks, or my folks would come down and they'd stay with them, and Megan and I would go away for a couple days like that. We have this adorable picture of Allie. 
and it was one of the days when we were gone and first thing in the morning, Allie wanted to know when we were coming back. And my mom said, they'll be back soon. And so Allie takes a lawn chair and brings it out and sets it on the curb and she just sits there waiting for us. So this is a picture of Allie. It's not the picture of her doing that, but Allie was just so cute when she was little. I had to show you what she looked like. But I just love that. It's, that was the spirit. Allie, Allie knew that we would come back because we said we would, and so she just sat on the curb and waited for us. It's that kind of assurance that we can have that if Jesus went away, he's gonna come back again. Jesus says, I, I won't abandon you, I'll come back. And that's good news because some of us have abandonment issues. Some of us have been left before. Some of us have been rejected. And so we have issues. It's hard to trust people. And some of us have trust issues because our trust has been abused. And we have difficulty believing people when they say that they want good for us because we have too many experiences with people not living up to their promises in the past. Now, some of you may want to take my man card for this, but I recently watched Where the Crawdads Sing, and it was a really challenging movie for me because I don't like abusive situations. I don't like to watch that. I don't really like to know about it. I know it happens, but it's not my preferred form of entertainment. So it was challenging. And for those of you who have read the book or seen the movie, even if you won't admit to it like I just did, uh, it's about this girl whose entire family either abuses her or abandons her. She ends up living by herself in the swamps in North Carolina. And then one day along comes this boy named Tate, and he's so good to her. He enters into her, her world. He's kind to her where other people aren't. They have this wonderful relationship. He teaches her how to read. He helps unlock some of the great gifts that she has. And then it's time for him to go away to college. And he promises he will come back. And then there's the scene where she waits for him and waits for him, and waits for him, and realizes that he isn't coming back, at least not anytime soon. And it's heart-wrenching. And some of us know that pain. Somebody said they were gonna come back, and they never did. This passage reminds us that Jesus isn't like that. He said he will come back, and he will. And he'll come back to take us somewhere to a place where there is room for you. He says, I'm going to my father's house and then I'll come back and take you there to be with me. Now I am blessed, I'm fortunate. I have really, really positive associations with home. I associate home with support and care and love and acceptance. And many of you do not have that same experience. And a lot of you who are teachers or educators know that a lot of kids don't have that same experience too. You know that the, weekend the week before break and the, weekend and the week after break is gonna be terrible because the kids don't wanna be home because of what happens to them when they're home because it's not safe. Jesus promises a safe place. Jesus promises a place where you won't be abused, where you won't be neglected, where you belong. And it's really a powerful image. One of the hardest lessons I've had to learn as an adult is that I can control very little. I can control almost nothing. But this passage reminds me that no matter what happens, I can trust God because he's coming back for me and he has a place for me. 
I want to spend just a minute talking about Father's house because there's only one other place that Jesus uses this phrase, my Father's house, and he does it in reference to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple is where heaven and earth meet together. It's where God comes and dwells among his people. That's what a temple is. And so now, Jesus, who has used the language of his Father's house as the temple, is beginning to hint that there's a new place, there's a new city, there's a new world, there's a new home where heaven and earth will meet again. And this is gonna happen when God renews the entire world. And when that happens, there's gonna be room for everybody in God's kingdom. And then Jesus says, you know the place to where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I love this passage because there's so much real life in this passage. And that's one of the things that I love the most about the Bible is that it is not sanitized. It's pretty real life. I mean, why in the world would anyone put that in there unless it actually happens? Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. But it speaks to the way I live my life. Because lots of times I don't really know what's going on. And this should be relatively plain to them. I mean, Jesus talks about this and Thomas goes, we have no clue what you're talking about. And what's Jesus's response? Mine would have probably been, you are such an idiot. But this is not Jesus's response. Jesus says, let me put this clearly. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I like this translation a little bit better. The Father is where I'm going and I'm how you'll get there too. I like that because this verse in this, in this way, no one comes to the Father except through me, has become a little bit problematic because it doesn't sound very tolerant. It doesn't sound very respectful of other people's beliefs. And it sounds like a pretty audacious claim. Our way is right and your way is wrong. And so lots of times, lately anyway, people hear this voice and accuse followers of Jesus of bigotry or cultural imperialism. So let's take a moment to kind of think through this a little bit. Because if you look at religions around the world or belief systems or whatever, people like to say things like, all religions are the same. Well, it's a nice thought, but it's just not true. Many religions are mutually exclusive. They don't say the same things and they don't value the same things. So there's a lot of differences between the world's religions and belief systems. And lots of times we like to think that all religions lead to the same place, but that's not true either. Many religions have very different goals in mind. In one religion, if you die a martyr's death, you get 72 virgins in heaven. That religion would not be Christianity because that's problematic on so many different levels. But the different religions look at things very, very differently. They all don't lead to the same way. Is it cultural imperialism? Well, unfortunately, a lot of effort ended up promoting a culture or a way of life rather than simply following Jesus, or it promoted a culture in addition to following Jesus. It might be requiring Polynesians to wear moo-moos because they wore a whole lot less than that and missionaries didn't think that that was appropriate. It might be having people sing hymns instead of indigenous songs that are written about Jesus or importing other cultural things. But ultimately, the story is not Western. 
I mean, I think about my own background. The Jesus story really is not my cultural heritage. I mean, my family is from English and, is English and Swedish. My forefathers were worshiping trees and headed to Asgard. I mean, the, the Jesus story is really very Middle Eastern if you can take some of the other things away from this. And we talk about that a lot. We've got to be careful not to confuse cultural values and the way we do things with the gospel. Is it bigotry to say that Jesus is the way? Well, not the way I read it, because I think what Jesus is really getting at here is the posture of God. It's the will of God that everyone should be saved. That's God's heart. God is not exclusive. God is inclusive. It's said that the United States Senate is the most exclusive club in the world. The church often is an exclusive club, but it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be open to everyone. And it's not really a belief of arrogance because the truth about the life through which we find and know the way is Jesus himself, who just washed his disciples' feet, who just served them, who just told them to copy his example. Jesus, who is willing to give his life for others. It's not the way of arrogance, it's the way of humility. And I think here's what's good news about this passage, that through Jesus, God has made a way where there was no way. We don't have to wonder about how to reach God. We don't have to wonder about how to appease God, because God reaches out to us, and God shows us how to get to him. God shows us what to do. There's no mystery. God makes it plain, and God shows that his character, his posture towards us is love and grace. But there's also kind of another question that goes behind this. I mean, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, what happens to people if they die, if they haven't accepted Jesus? I mean, we all have friends, we all have relatives. Most of my family on my mom's side is Mormon. Uh, their, their belief system is very, very different. One of my aunts is Jewish. Their belief system is quite a bit different. And we all know lots of people that are moral and they're good people and don't seem to have any relationship to Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, the way I look at it is I'm not God and I can't see into people's hearts. I don't know what they're really thinking. I don't know what they're really believing. Only God knows that. The other thing that I don't know is how the cross gets applied across the board. What I do know is that on the cross and through the empty tomb, that Jesus breaks the power of sin and death for the entire world. And I think we'll find that the power of the cross is far more effective than we think it is. But how it all works, that I have to leave in the hands of a just and merciful and kind God who sees and knows our hearts and our intent. So Jesus says, I've made a way to the Father. I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna take you there. And so the task then for us is to get on the way, is to follow Jesus. You do that first by making a decision. It's not magic. There's no special incantation that has to be said. There's no six magic words. If you say those things, all of a sudden you're in. It's an act of the will that gets carried out in choices that we make over and over again. To bring out the quote from Kierkegaard from last week, Jesus doesn't call adherents or admirers or even worshipers. Jesus calls followers and disciples. It's the changed heart 
along with changed actions, that we participate with the Holy Spirit in an act of our will. And then, after we've decided that's what we want to do, then we just simply need to get close to Jesus and follow him. Now, we talked about moral people, and maybe that's how you feel. I'm a moral person. Great. Good choices are their own reward. You'll sleep better at night. You'll be known as a person of integrity. That's great. But it won't change your life, like actually following in the Jesus way. And how do you get close to Jesus? Well, honestly, it's mostly you just have to decide you want to. If I said, name three things that you need to do to grow as a disciple, most people could come up with three good things. And when you come up with those, we're happy to help. But if I could tell you to just do one thing, if there's one thing above all else that I think would help you to follow Jesus, it would be to get in a relationship. Whether it's a three-to-one relationship, whether it's a spiritual mentorship, or whether it's joining a small group, that will promote your growth more than anything else that I know of because so many things will come as a part of that. So if Blake has invited you to a bonfire or if Angela has invited you to coffee or if Sammy has asked you to join one of her groups, if these people have asked you 1,500 times, the next time they ask, make this space and go because it'll change your life. Now, a lot of what Jesus is talking about here is for the future, but it's also good news for now. If you're struggling with fear and anxiety, if your heart's troubled, if you're going through difficult times, if you wonder if you're alone, if you wonder what the future holds, you can live out of a place of confidence and security because Jesus has the thing covered. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what's troubling your heart? Number two, what does it mean to you that Jesus will love you to the end? And number three, what is one thing you can do to get closer to Jesus? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.